You can be seated, and I'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. They're following Miss Tracy, Sarah, Miss Laurie. Again, parents, when you came in, you received um, our, uh, our little guide for you for this week to use um, to help enforce some of the things that they're learning back there, um, the Jesus Storybook Bible or the... Uh, or our catechisms for our older kids, so I encourage you to walk through that with them. And even if you don't have kids, I think that's a great thing for you to see and experience and walk through. Um, If you would open your Bibles to Proverbs 3, and uh, let's pray together before we kind of jump into this. Father, thank you for the gift of your word and what you're doing in and through us. I pray, Father, that um, you would speak very clearly to us. Many of us Fighting great battles, seem to be walking through the fog when it comes to clarity as our next steps. So Father, help us to draw near to you and that you would show us the light of your truth. You promise us the gospel of John, that your Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. And I pray that this not only would stir our emotions and our affections for you, but it would cause some to move from death unto life and others from um, rebellion to repentance. And still more, Father, that you would just continually to encourage um, as they fight the good fight of faith. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Before I jump into Proverbs 3, I want to kind of give a little uh, commercial of sorts for um, Christmas Conspiracy. If you're new with us, you're probably uh, unaware of what that even is, Christmas Conspiracy. Um, But every year, uh, we've done this really since the birth of our church. Uh, We participate with a lot of other churches um, in this thing called Christmas Conspiracy. And we're just asking ourselves, what would it look like for us to make Christmas a life-changing, world-changing event again? In our culture, Christmas, just by the nature of what it is, has become very inward-focused. And what we want to do is push it back outward. And so what we've called ourselves to do and challenged us to do during this four-week initiative through the, uh, through the Advent season, is to uh, worship more fully, to spend less, to give more, and to take every opportunity we have um, to love others. And with that comes a Christmas conspiracy offering, and we challenge our church every year to match whatever you're giving or spending in Christmas gifts to this mission offering, and we're going to take that mission offering and really invest it into four real uh, specific places through the hub who does um, work in poverty and sex trafficking, um, to church planters, which we just sent Stephen out this year, and you're going to hear reports back of what's going on there. We we also cover, uh, support several other church plants, and in uh, the ministry of adoption um, and orphan care, and our church is becoming more and more involved in that, and you'll hear some stories of that, and then in our unreached people group, um, the Palong. So um, all of that is coming, and that's what that mission offering goes to. Um, And if you say, Luke, that's way too much for me, that's okay. Just give what you can. And maybe matching gifts isn't enough for you. You've been blessed incredibly, and we would ask you to give extravagantly to this. This year, and this, you know, we're a small church. This year, our mission goal for that offering is $35,000, which is over 10% of our actual annual budget. Um, And so it is a big um, thing to ask. Um, but God has always been faithful, and those people are always so encouraged when we are able to send that money along and to help them. So Christmas conspiracy is coming. 
And I just give you that heads up for budgetary reasons. Um, and so I know Ashley and I have already started thinking about, okay, how are we going to do this and how are we going to set this money aside? And, you know, it normally comes that I take on a few extra jobs to help make a little extra money so that we can give generously to this. Uh, turning to Proverbs 3, I hope you've enjoyed the, uh, the Proverbs series that we've been in. Um, I was a little hesitant, uh, kind of getting the wheels going in the beginning. It's taken a while to kind of... Um, to get in full form here, but I have enjoyed so much uh, studying Proverbs 1, 2, and 3, and we're going to pick up the speed a little bit. Um, we only have five sermons left before we start um, our Advent series, and if need to, we can come back after the first of the year. But uh, today we're talking about wisdom again. Last week we talked about pursuing wisdom, and uh, this week we're really talking about um, faith. Let me read the scripture to you, the first part of Proverbs chapter 3 that uh, Betsy read in our scripture reading. Let's start in verse 1, though. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my command. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord disciplines, or for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. These are probably very familiar words to you if you grew up in the church or around the church. Just the reading of Proverbs uh, chapter 3 verses uh, 5 and 6 just bring back to me this nostalgia of learning it at a very young age. I think we probably memorized this in our home and Knowing my dad, we probably made up some song around this to kind of help us uh, memorize this at a very young age. And still, as I studied it this week, some things jumped off the page to me that I have never seen. And I promise I've probably read this thousands of times. It all centers around there in verse 5, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The most important decisions that we make in life often revolve around whom we choose to trust. Think about some of the uh, dumbest things that you've ever done in life when you trusted the wrong person. Or maybe some of the wisest things that you've done in life when you trusted the right person. Because who we trust in life determines our course in life. It talks about the path here, that your paths will be made straight. And this is really all of Proverbs kind of communicates this idea that we're on a path, we're walking a path, and this path is headed to a specific destination. Those on the way of folly that chose the path of folly, they're headed to a way of destruction. But those who are walking on the path of righteousness or the path of wisdom will ultimately find the destiny that God has created for us. So this idea of who we trust is an important idea. And a life of wisdom is dependent upon a complete trust in God. 
as we've said before, the wise father is pointing out to his son who he should and shouldn't trust. In chapters 1 and 2, we see that he's telling his son, hey, don't trust in the simple. They don't even know which way they're going or what they're talking about. Don't trust in the foolish. They're just living for today's pleasure. No care about the direction or destination of their life. He says, don't trust in the evil. Those people only want to use you as a means to an end. In chapter 2, he says, don't trust men of perverted speech or those that walk in the way of evil or don't trust the adulterous woman and her smooth words. These are people you shouldn't trust. And to turn it in a positive sense, he says to his son, the wise father saying to the son, this is God the father speaking to us, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And maybe you're version like mine has the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is God's covenant name of Yahweh used through the Old Testament. Trust in the Lord. And what are they saying? They're saying that our confidence is not in some impersonal ethic, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant keeping God of the Bible. And the kind of trust that he deserves and demands is a wholehearted trust. We should trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. I'm going to look at that, this idea, the object of our trust, this Lord, this covenant name for God through the Old Testament, this idea of Yahweh, this promise-keeping God. All the way back to Moses as he goes to deliver his people from Israel. I mean, from Egypt, the people of Israel from Egypt. And he asked God, God, who do I say that sent me? And he uses this word, this covenant name for himself, this I am, Yahweh. And this chapter is filled with this covenant-keeping language. Look at verse 3. It says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. If you've been around very long, maybe that sounds familiar to you. A lot of this... A lot of this is symbolism, even from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. It's this covenant language, steadfast love and faithfulness. These are adjectives that are used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's covenant love for his people. The covenant must be written on the heart of the king and for the people of the kingdom to flourish. And Solomon says to his son, hey, tie them around your neck. Which again recalls this language in Deuteronomy 6 where the law was to be bound on the hand and described on the frontlet for the eyes. And the command to write it on the tablet of your heart connects that to the Ten Commandments that the law of God were written upon. The wise father exhorts his son to obey the law, his teaching, the Torah, and the commands. We've seen throughout the book of Proverbs that there's a strong connection between the law and wisdom. Deuteronomy 4, 6 says that keeping the laws is the wisdom of Israel. Deuteronomy 6 commands that parents teach the law to their children. Solomon is obeying all of this in Proverbs by showing how wisdom is obeying the law in daily life. But more than just the law. Jesus, if you remember him walking on the road to Emmaus, he's walking with some of these disciples of his and they don't recognize him. And he says he begins to go through the Old Testament, pointing them to Jesus through every part of it, showing them how he, Jesus, was the culmination of the law. This is really talking about the person of Jesus. So when we hear, trust in the Lord with all your heart, we hear the wise father telling us, listen, trust in the words and ways of Jesus. 
So trust in the Lord, this covenant-keeping God of Israel. What he's really saying here is that all wisdom begins with knowing God. All wisdom begins with knowing God. Trusting is God, in God is not a I feel good about my chances kind of thing. No, trusting God is this all-in kind of trust. No hedging your bets. No looking for loopholes. No getting faith insurance. It's this all-in on who the person of God is as revealed to us through Jesus. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. I think I have this quote on the screen. Pseudo-faith always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And, since, and not since Adam stood on the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted in him. I love this. The Ten Commandments were written on these stone tablets and the people didn't obey them. Look at Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. But Scripture promises that a day is coming when the covenant will be written on the tablet of the heart so that we can obey. Of course, he's pointing forward to us even now on this side of the cross. Jeremiah 31, 33 says this. Instead, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. This trusting the Lord with all your heart. Look back at verse 1. This is one of the things that I had never seen before. I, I like this. It says in verse 1, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. You ever seen that before? He's not just telling him, hey, go keep my commandments. He's saying, I want your heart to keep my commandments. Well, how does one's heart keep the commandments unless the heart itself is transformed? The law must be internalized in order to be obeyed. There has to be an inward transformation where the law is written on the heart. Jeremiah 31, we just read, or Ezekiel 36. Theologians call this regeneration. We see it in verse 1, let your heart keep. This is what Ezekiel was talking about when he talks about taking a heart of stone and turning it into a heart of flesh. It's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians where he says we're going to move from being dead and our trespasses and sin to a life together with Christ. That's what Jesus was talking about when he talked about when, in, uh, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he said that we must be born again. Proverbs recognizes this need for inside-out transformation, not behavior modification. Proverbs isn't exhorting us to a behavior first and foremost. It's advocating our need for a changed heart before any of these things can be followed. The Pharisees that Jesus interacted with tended to emphasize the externals of the covenant, the boundary markers of Sabbath and circumcision, keeping the Torah and so on, rather than a regenerated heart. Jesus addresses this in Luke 11 with them. God's kingdom, however, is not a matter of eating and drinking, Paul says in Romans 14, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Why would this be? Because Jesus took our place on the cross and accomplished salvation for us, which we receive freely as a gift. 
Keller says it this way, traditional religion teaches that if we do good deeds and follow some more rules in our external behavior, then God will come into our heart and bless us and give us salvation. And most people, even in the Christian church, believe that this is the message of the gospel, but it's not. In other words, if I obey, God will love and accept me, but the gospel is the reverse of this. If I know in my heart that God has accepted me and loves me freely, then I can begin to obey out of inner joy and gratitude. Religion is outside in, but the gospel is inside out. We are justified by grace alone, not by works. We are beautiful and righteous in God's sight by the work of Christ. And once we gain this understanding, Keller says, on the inside, it revolutionizes how we relate to God and to ourselves and to others on the outside. Real wisdom begins with a new heart. I've been in church a long time, and I've known church people a long time. Growing up, my dad started churches and pastored churches. Several of those places, we lived in the parsonage. That is the house that's actually on the church's property. So we like did the whole thing with church, and I was in and out of some of the business meetings, and I saw a lot of unregenerated people within the walls of the church. They were still following religion, this outside-in kind of thing. If I keep the cultural boundary markers, if I don't cuss, and if I, if I don't do all these things, then I'll be accepted and God will love me. But the heart of the gospel is so different from that. It says, no, we go to him with all of our junk and our mess and our sin. We don't go to him with our resume of good deeds that we've done. We go to him literally with nothing, crying out to him, saying, God, there's no way that I'm worthy of this. And it is then and only then that we find grace. True wisdom begins with a new heart. You can read all of Proverbs and all the wise sayings in here, and it might not make a difference in your life if you don't come out of it with a regenerated heart tells us to trust the Lord with all of your heart. Can I ask you this, if we can just be real honest on this Sunday, it's the end of fall break, half of our people aren't here, but just you communicating with God. I don't think it's a mistake that you're here today or that this is the text that, that we are in. Do you really trust him with all your heart? Here's maybe a little test you might use. When you go to God's word, do you let the Bible overrule your own thinking? Maybe you're struggling with worry or anxiety, and we look at what Jesus says about those things, that we shouldn't worry or be anxious, but we should seek his kingdom, and he's going to add all these other things to you. Do we let the Bible overrule our own thinking? It says in verse 5, do not lean on your own understanding. Do you merely agree with the Bible, or do you obey the Bible? Agreeing with the parts that we like but dismissing the parts that we don't like is not only dangerous, but it really shows us who we, who we want to serve, and that's ourselves. One of my seminary professors called this Dalmatian theology, and it is rampant. Maybe even more so in our own church than we would like to believe. What do you do when the Bible contradicts what you want to be true? If you were looking in the Bible for excuses to do what you want to anyway, you have in fact rejected God. But if you trust the Lord, you will let the Bible challenge your most cherished thoughts and feelings. 
And this is the wonderful thing as we walk through Proverbs. And the most wonderful thing about the Lord is that he cares about our questions and our problems. And he wants to speak into our lives in ways that will help us. But we have to trust him wholeheartedly. Will you let him teach you? Will you joyfully submit to his way? Trusting in the Lord with all your heart, again, not leaning on your own understanding. Leaning on your own understanding can be so very dangerous. Proverbs 16, 25 warns us that there's a way which seems right unto man, but the end thereof is the way of death. I can testify to that truth even in my own life as a young man and even now, that there's a way that seems right to me. But it's not always the right way. I look at the path and I see, man, there's a lot of people on this path and they look like they're having a good time and it looks like it's headed in the right direction. Maybe I should just join them. There's a way that seems right to me that's actually going to end up in destruction. You guys remember life before GPS? After the, after the map and before GPS, we had MapQuest. Anybody, MapQuesters? You would print like, you would print like 35 pages of, 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 of instructions. And half of them were wrong, or I couldn't read them, or we would get them all messed up. Being some of my, my buds in high school, senior year, we were taking a trip. Got the MapQuest all, all messed up. We had no idea we were going. We ended up far away from our intended destination. And I feel like that's true of so many people. You've got to be so careful not to lean on your own understanding. We all have our own understanding. And we all think our way is right. And nothing has cultivated this opinionated world more than Facebook. Right? Or social media. Things that you would never say in public. Now that you will, take, you will you know, stick a stake in the ground and say, and this is what I really believe in my own understanding and this is what the wise father is saying to the son listen i know you think you know a lot buddy and you really do know a lot and you have seen a lot but don't trust your own way don't lean all of your weight unto your own understanding because there's a way that seems right to man but in the end it's the way to death this is why we have to trust the Lord and submit to his way. I think we as a church, maybe not our specific church, but certainly we're included. As the church in the West, we really struggle with this so much. Namely, I think the attack is on the, in, on the ways of truth. In regards to truth, absolute truth, our society claims that all truth is relevant. Meaning what is true for you might not be true for me, but truth is relevant. But that is not what the Bible speaks of at all. It speaks of absolute truth, truth that is true for all people at all times and all circumstances. If we state that what the Bible says here is true, but what the Bible says over here is outdated, then we've made absolute our culture and given it final authority over the Bible. But the Bible either has final authority or it doesn't. It either has final authority and determines what in the culture is acceptable and unacceptable, or the culture has final authority over the Bible and determines what in the text is acceptable or unacceptable. Again, this comes back to truth. We're going to look at this over the next few weeks, what the Bible says about money, what the Bible really says about the tongue and how we use our words, what the Bible says about 
sex, and so on. The Bible is really clear on a lot of those issues. But we have to make the decision, as the son has to make the decision here in Proverbs 3, are we going to joyfully submit to the rule of Scripture over us? Or are we going to put the Scripture under us and we're going to let our understanding actually make the final decision? When you really look about at this, you really have to ask yourself, do, you, do I really trust God? Do I trust that he's kind? Do I trust that he's loving? Do I trust that he's for me? Do I trust scripture where it says that Jesus is my advocate before the Father, that he is really for me no matter what I'm walking through in life at this current moment? Do we, do we really trust God? Maybe we could ask ourselves this question, in what areas are we distrusting the Lord? Where am I not trusting God as he's leading me? Where are you not trusting God as he's leading you? Maybe we would even take it back one step and we would ask ourselves, do we really believe that God is trustworthy? Do we believe what the psalmist says, that in his presence there's fullness of joy and at his right hand is pleasures forevermore? Or is that just ancient talk for only certain people? And our truth is that our pleasure and joy is going to come some other way. Do we really believe that Jesus is the bread of life that satisfies our hunger and the ever-flowing spring that satisfies our thirst and all the other little gods and false idols that clamor for our attention are nothing but noise trying to distract us from the very thing that we were created to worship and that is God himself seen through the person of Christ, revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that God is trustworthy? Or do we believe verbally we might say that he's trustworthy, but in the back of our minds, as A.W. Tozer is talking about, we really have this pseudo-faith. Like, we're going to trust him, but we're also going to hedge our bets in case he doesn't come through. Growing up, I watched this show, uh, MacGyver. Any of you ever watched MacGyver? They're actually trying to start the new one, and it's nothing near as cool. No guys with mullets on there. You remember the show, MacGyver? It's the last name of the show's hero, played by Richard Dean Anderson. He worked as a special agent for this fictional Phoenix Foundation. He always used his Swiss Army knife, which is what I like. Had that as a little kid, the Swiss Army knife, and like a gum wrapper to, like, you know, thwart the plan of the enemy. What's cool about MacGyver is every show, he always came through in a pinch. No matter the circumstance, when trouble came, you wanted MacGyver to be with you because he could get you out of the situation. He was trustworthy. I know it's a silly illustration, but this is the question that we really wrestle with today. Is God trustworthy? Because sin, when sin pre- presents itself, whether it's late at night on a computer screen or flirtation with the opposite sex in the work environment when you're already married, when it's this desire to just fudge your taxes a little bit so you can make a lot more money. When sin presents itself, you have to ask yourself this question, do I really trust God and what he says in this moment? This is going to be important. Teenagers in here, I want you to know this. This is important. For you to answer this question now, is God trustworthy? 
Because what's going to come before you are this litany of decisions, all these voices on the road to folly calling out to you, hey, come over here. It's more fun over here. You got to make the decision as a young man or a young woman. Am I really going to trust God? When life gets tough, when sin's in the world and our enemy Satan trying to thwart God's plan and destroy our lives, when life gets tough, Things do get tough. You can ask anybody in this room that's lived any sort of life that they would tell you that life does get tough. And maybe you'll notice, this is why the scripture kind of ends this section with this weird turn. In verse 11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father the son in whom he He delights. Maybe you've noticed so far that this is covenantal language all through this first part. That the first part of the verse, the odd verses, is these are the things that that God's asking us to do. And then the even verses, 2, 4, 6, 8, and 10 are the promises that we get when we keep God's covenant. So this is what it's building upon. Verse 2, the length of your... Days and years of your life and peace will be added to you. And in verse 4, you're going to find good success in the sight of God and man. In verse 6, and uh, we're going we're to have straight paths. In verse 8, we're going to have healing and refreshment to our bones. In verse 10, our barns are going to be filled with plenty and our vats will be bursting with wine. This is the good life that we want, is it not? This is all the promises and then... The wise father to a son like slips this little thing in here at the end of this, what could be seen as this prosperity gospel, which it's not. And we're going to talk about that some next week. But my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Like the father telling the son that this is a guarantee. Hebrews would elaborate that the good father disciplines the one that he loves. If you walk with God very long at all, that you'll know that discipline certainly comes. Jesus would talk about it as this picture, the symbol of the vine and its branches. He would talk about pruning branches that produce fruit so that they will produce more fruit. Then we got this passage kind of out of nowhere that the Lord's discipline is coming because the Lord, it says in verse 12, reproves or corrects Him who he loves. Here's the point. Some wisdom can only be gained by suffering. Some wisdom can only be gained by suffering. That there are some things about wisdom that you will not know as the simple, inexperienced, sometimes ignorant, that we just will not know until we walk through suffering. Just think about people who you consider to be wise. Go ask them where they learned their wisdom or what season of life. And almost every one of them would point to this very difficult, what they would never want to walk through kind of situation again. But in that situation, not only was God more near to them than ever before, but they learned wisdom that they couldn't see without the difficulty. Trusting God when we can't see him or how he's working is called faith. 
It's the very thing that Hebrews says that we cannot please God without faith. And if we live this kind of comforted life with with no adventure or no risk or no following Jesus, even when we can't see necessarily what the next step is, then that's not faith. And Hebrews says there's no way that we can please God without faith. It's the only thing that ever astonished Jesus when he saw people's faith. It's the only thing that he would begin to talk about even to others when he saw people's faith. This idea of faith is just not mentioned haphazardly in Scripture. It's the essence of our relationship with Christ. By faith, we trust Christ for our salvation. And by faith, we live by the truth of God's Word. By faith, we trust God. Again, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews says, without faith. And so really the issue at hand this morning is the issue of faith. Faith in God doesn't mean that life will be easy as a matter of fact or as a matter of faith. Sometimes faithfulness to God and his word sets us on a course where circumstances get worse and not better. So I was thinking about this and studying this, feeling like I've gone through a season of pruning or in a season of pruning in my own life. I couldn't help but think of Joseph. You ever kind of wallow in your own self-pity just for a little bit and you just think life is so bad until you kind of get woken up to someone's life that is far worse? I was thinking about Joseph, going back to read his story. You remember Joseph, right? He was born with God's favor. He was loved by his dad, Jacob. But not far into Joseph's story, things take a turn for a worse, for the worse, and they keep getting worse, it seems. Sold into slavery by his very brothers. Every seemingly good news in the story eventually turns worse for Joseph. We're driving home from a trip and I just began to imagine being Joseph, knowing my own personality and my desire for instant answers to prayer, not wanting to go through difficulty. Imagine the pain of his brother's betrayal, separation from his beloved father, the horror of slavery, the seduction of false accusation by Potiphar's wife, the desperation he felt as years passed away. His whole youth passed away while he's in prison. He gets into prison, Scripture tells us, when he's about 17. He's in there for nearly 10 years. He gets released only to be put back in prison by the setup of Potiphar's wife for several more years. He gets out in his 30, having spent nearly half of his life in prison. And he never really finds out why. Do you ever come to the end of something difficult and you think, okay, well, God's going to show me exactly why I had to go through all this and then it's going to be worth it. It could be like, like the scene in Rocky where he goes and trains in Siberia or something. You remember this? And he's like training and the music's building and then he gets in the ring and you say, oh, It was worth it. Look at all that training he did. And he he becomes victorious. But you know what? Sometimes we never know why God allows us to walk through dark times. Or why God allows difficulty in our life. Or why some difficulty is even sent by God. It's what Paul says of the thorn in the flesh. This messenger of Satan that's sent. 
Think about all the lonely nights of Joseph in prison, trusting God. All the while, Joseph's faith in God, even when he didn't understand why or how or even what was going on, it led to this fairy tale ending. Joseph ended up saving the nation of Egypt from famine. He also saved his family. It's this beautiful ending. Hebrews 11 talks about some of these others that followed God that didn't get such a fairy tale ending. You remember that? That says by faith that some people like Abraham goes through this hall of faith. It says that they just did these phenomenal things by faith. By faith in verse 9 going to the land of promise. By faith, by faith, by faith. All these things that were accomplished. It says in verse 29, and by faith people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. And by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith Rahab the prostitute didn't perish. Verse 32, again, this is not on the screen. I was just thinking about that this morning. What more shall I say? Verse 32, if time would let me, I would tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice, obtained promises and stomped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war. Put foreign enemies to flight. Women receiving back their dead by resurrection. Then it kind of takes a turn for the worse. I just want to stop right there. Verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins and sheep and goat destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. All of these, though commended through their faith, these were people of faith. They did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better, ever read that part that God provided something better but they didn't receive the promise in this life they never saw the reason they never saw what came at the end of this dark journey they were walking but God provided something better that is this intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that we can have joy in the midst of such suffering we don't have to know why doesn't mean that we don't pray for the situation to absolve itself. It doesn't mean that we don't cry out to God to send peace and bring restoration. Absolutely we do. But again, this all comes back to faith. Do you really trust God? Is he trustworthy? And if he is, then we'll keep trusting him. You know how you learn to trust God? Simply by trusting him a little bit more every day. Don't wait until you're in the valley, or don't wait till you're in the midst of battle to start trusting him. No, trust him today. 
Submit your life joyfully to him today. Trusting in God is a question of faith. And the only thing that will help you trust him in the dark times and in the good times is to know that he loves you with an everlasting love. This covenant language that we started with. That he's working good for you even when you don't see it. And it's because we believe that he's trustworthy and that he's never failed anyone who's ever placed their trust in him that we will continue trusting him just as Jesus did. I don't think there's any better picture of this than Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's praying that maybe he doesn't have to drink the bitter cup. Even his own disciples have fallen asleep. They can't labor with him. He says, can't you pray with me for an hour? They're falling asleep over there. He's by himself. He's literally praying blood out of his tear ducts, sweating drops of blood. He says, Lord, if there's any way around this, please show it to me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Now that's an attitude of trust. That's faith that we see in Jesus. This confidence that God is going to do what is right and just and most loving. And so we trust him. It was just before that that Jesus instituted communion. And we're going to invite you to participate in communion again. And as we take it today, would you be reminded of the trustworthiness of God? Who not only promised way back in Genesis that he would send the promised seed to come and restore things to someone, a Messiah that would forgive sin, that would begin to uh, fix the fabric of creation that had been broken through sin. But even more than that, that this new covenant that Jeremiah talked about, a covenant written on our hearts, was indeed coming. And that Jesus did come. And we live on the other side of that promise, seeing it revealed even to us and through us, as Jason talked about as ministers of reconciliation. So when we take the bread and dip it into the cup, may we be reminded of the ultimate sacrifice Jesus made, but the appeal he's still making through us. Maybe you'd be reminded of his goodness, of his incredible love for you. If you were ever to doubt the love of God for you, you should just look back to the cross and see it gets no better or more evident than that. I'm going to pray for us. Our servers are going to come to help us with communion. You don't have to be a member of our church to partake in communion, but the Bible says you have to be part of God's family. You've trusted him by faith and desire to live a life of obedience. But I want to give you some time to really wrestle with some hard issues this morning. Questions like, am I really trusting God? What areas of my life am I not trusting God? What areas of my life am I still living as an orphan when I've been adopted into God's family? Maybe this morning you've, you've been playing this game of church or religion for a long time and it's time for you to step across the line of faith and place your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord and I'd invite you to do that. Father, we know you're good. And if we're really honest, most of the time our, our hearts are fickle. That we believe you're good. 
when we're in prosperity. And we believe that you are right and just when everything in our little circle seems good. But when difficulty and pain come, when the pruning happens, when we see evidence of the broken world around us, sometimes, if we're not careful, we'll doubt the goodness of our God. Lord, keep sending to us this invitation to taste and see that you're good. Pray for all of us in this room that we would take a spiritual step this morning. Whether that's trusting you in this critical area of faith that's been laid before us, or whether it's placing our faith and trust in you for the very first time, or maybe some in this room have walked this long road of darkness. We're in the midst of the trial and the difficulty, and Father, we need you more than ever just to remind us of your love for us through Jesus. It's in his mighty name that we pray, amen. Take some time to pray if you want and come when you're ready.